All right, we're going to do something a little different today. I just want to talk to the kids for a few moments. And kids, I want to tell you, I'm really glad you're here, and I'm really glad you're part of this service. I know Pastor David prepared some really cool goodie bags for you, and on the front of that bag, there's a, uh, most of them have a cross. And I want to ask you a question today, and by the way, I'm just going to talk to the kids right now, but everyone else can listen in too if you want. Uh, but I want to ask you a question, kids. Why do you think we have a cross up there? And why do you think so many people wear crosses? Why is the cross such a big deal for Christians? Why is it our main symbol? Now, there's a verse that I want to read to you in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, that says this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. So we are to remember Jesus who has been risen from the dead. But why is it that we haven't picked some other symbol uh, for Jesus? For example, I know this is really small, but we could have picked a manger because Jesus was born in a manger, right? We could be wearing, you know, mangers around our neck, putting mangers on the top of the church. Uh, but we didn't do that. The, the cross is, is the big deal, not, not the manger. What else could we have picked? Well, we could have picked a, a picture of a dove. I know it's kind of small, but it's still a, a nice picture of a dove. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River by John the Baptist? And while he was being baptized, uh, a dove came down symbolizing the Holy Spirit. And the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So it could have been a dove, but the dove's not the main symbol either. What else could it have been? Well, it could have been a throne. It could have been a throne because Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Why is it that we don't use a throne as the main symbol for Christianity? What else could we have used? Well, we could have used a bread, the bread and the cup. Remember, Jesus gave us these symbols to remember him by. He said, uh, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But we don't use the bread and the cup as our main symbol either. It's a cross. You know, we also could have used a stone. I brought a small one up today, but I mean, by the way, if this was our main symbol, it would be really heavy to wear stones around our neck, big rocks, you know. But when, when they came to the tomb, uh, as, as Mr. Mole read so well a little while ago, when they came to the tomb on the first day of the week, they saw that the stone had been what? What happened to the stone? It was rolled away. It was rolled away. It was gone. We could have used a stone as our main symbol. And we also could have used a towel because remember, uh, on the night before Jesus was, was crucified, he took, and, uh, took a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. And Jesus said, you should do as I have done to you. But it's a cross. So why is it that the cross is the big deal? Why do we hang huge crosses in our churches and, and wear crosses around our necks? I'm going to give you the answer. It's because the cross is the place that Jesus did what he came to earth to do. The cross is the place that he took our punishment. He became our substitute. And he died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. That's what I'm going to be talking about in just a few minutes. And I want to tell the kids, I'm really glad you're here with us. I'm really glad you're worshiping together with us. And right now, as the ushers come forward, I want to remind us of something that the scriptures tell us. That every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything we have. Our kids, they're a gift. Our spouses, our friends, our family. Everything we have. Please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. 
And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. As you're looking for that and as you're beginning to stand, let me just say that Hebrews is a hard book to understand at times, and it's hard to teach. And you have to dig down deep to get to what is being said. And our passage for today, Hebrews 13, 9 through 14, is a difficult one. But I am thankful for this congregation because you're hungry for the Word of God. You love the book. You are mature and intelligent and and eager to do what God says and and what God shows. And so I'm happy to read as we we look into the Word today, Hebrews 13, 9 to 14. Do not be carried about by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we pray you would speak to our hearts through it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, why is the cross the symbol for Christians? At first, it was avoided due to persecution and the shameful association it had with the execution of common criminals. The earliest Christian symbols were of doves or fish. Only those within the family would know that ichthus, the word for fish, was an acronym for Jesus Christos, Theo, Huios, Soter, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Persecuted Christians drew pictures of Noah's Ark and of Abraham sacrificing the ram instead of Isaac and of a shepherd carrying a lamb in his arms and, and of Jonah being thrown up by the fish. All cryptic symbols of what Jesus did on the cross for us. But from at least the second century on, Christians drew, painted, engraved, and made the sign of the cross. And it was always an empty cross, by the way. It wasn't until around the sixth century that crosses began showing up with a Jesus on them. They knew it was an empty cross because Jesus had died and was buried and was risen from the grave and was coming again. Central to their understanding of Jesus was not his birth, not his teaching, not his service, not even his resurrection or his reign as king, but his crucifixion, his death. One of the first to record this practice was the North African lawyer and theologian Tertullian around A.D. 200. He wrote this, At every forward step or movement, at every going in and out, 
When we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamps, on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon the forehead the sign of the cross. Why is the cross our symbol? It is because, as Leon Morris wrote, the cross dominates the New Testament. The cross dominates the New Testament. That's why we do not use a manger or a carpenter's bench or a towel or the bread and cup or a stone or a dove or a fish or a throne, but a cross where Jesus did what he came to earth to do. There is no greater subject in all the world but the message of the cross of Christ. The cross is at the very heart of the Bible. In the Old Testament, Jesus, the divine Savior and perfect sacrifice for sinners, is promised. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the pierced one to whom Israel looked in Zechariah. The Old Testament points to a coming Messiah who would die for the sins of the world. And in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus came at the perfect time, giving the perfect sacrifice for sin. And Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through 14, focuses on the cross of Christ. The death of Jesus being shown as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system given in the law of Moses. The Old Testament system had a priesthood. It had a high priest. It had an altar and sacrifices and bloodshed. And it gave a picture of what God would bring about in Christ. The key that unlocks this text is the key that unlocks the message of the Bible. The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10 in chapter 13 of Hebrews. We have an altar. We have an altar. Over the years, Bible commentators have said that there are four possibilities of what this altar really is. And the first is, it's a real altar of stone in the temple in Jerusalem prior to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But that's contrary to the whole message of Hebrews. It's not the temple altar. Others say it is a heavenly altar. In Revelation 6, 9, and 10, you see the martyrs around the altar of God crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? But in order for it to mean that, we must impose something on the text. So it's not that. Others say that it is the communion table. The table of our Lord where we celebrate his body and his blood shed for us. But that's another stretch. You must impose upon the text for it to mean that. And so the best explanation is that it is the cross of Christ. The altar is the cross. The cross is the altar on which Jesus sacrificed himself to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. An altar is a place where a sacrifice is made. 
In the Old Testament, it was on the altar that the animal was sacrificed and the blood was, was poured out. It was the foundation for the entire Levitical system. The place where God and his people were to meet and to communicate. The altar was in the place of first importance in the tabernacle. Of the seven pieces of furniture, it was the largest and it was the first thing a worshiper would see as they entered the tabernacle. It was made of wood. It was covered with brass, able to withstand the heat of fire. And an innocent animal would be sacrificed on that altar to deal with sin. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 43, God says this to the children of Israel, There I will meet with you. I will meet with you there at the altar. God was saying, come to this altar. Bring your sacrifices. Shed the blood. This is the only access you will have to me as a holy God. You had to come to God with the sacrifice. You had to bring something in your hands. It pictured what would happen when in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ would go to Jerusalem. And as the high priest for his people, he would offer himself making full atonement on the cross for lost sinners. Full atonement. Full payment. The altar upon which the sacrifice was made for sinners through the blood of Christ was the cross. There is no access to God through any other means. God says this, this is where we will meet. You must come to the cross where Jesus bled and he died for lost sinners. This, is, this alone is the place where a holy God will receive us. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. If you look back in Hebrews to chapter 9 and verse 11, in chapter 9 verse 11, it says that when Jesus appeared as a high priest representing the people of God to God, he became a high priest of the good things to come and he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not of this creation. Verse 12 says, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In verse 14, we read, How much more will the blood of Christ, who offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then in down in verse 22 of chapter 9, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. No forgiveness without that sacrifice. In verse 24, we read, He did not enter a holy place made with hands, but heaven itself, heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And in verse 25, it says that He did not have to offer Himself often, but once for all time. Once for all. In chapter 10, verse 10, it says, By this will we have been saved through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all time. The cross is the altar on which Jesus presented himself on our behalf as he bore our sins. One writer wrote, It is a marvel 
of mercy. It is a wonder of grace that poor fallen sinners may come into the presence of God without fear. No fear because of what Jesus Christ has done. If you're here today without a Savior, I want you to listen very closely to these words because these words will reveal to you and point to you to a Savior. They will portray what God has done through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you know Him, may you you be inspired by Him to, to walk very closely with Him. Hebrews 13, 9 through 14, teaches us about the centrality of the cross. It's very appropriate for Easter, where we celebrate the crucified, risen, living Savior. I want to point out several truths about the message of that cross. And the first truth is this. It's a simple truth. In fact, this this passage is somewhat difficult, and so... I want to give you three simple truths, of kind of like hooks that we, can, that we can get a grasp on. And the first is this, that nothing we do can make us right with God. Nothing we do can make us right with God. Look at verse 9 of Hebrews 13. Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Says that those who were so occupied weren't benefited by those. The strange and the varied teachings didn't help those that were so occupied with them. And if you're occupied with your own good works, they're not going to help you. Your own good works will be of no benefit to you in coming to God. Don't be led astray by ideas about Jesus that just are not true. There are two extremes that we're prone to go to. And the first one is this, when we think of Jesus and we think of salvation, is, is this. Well, isn't there something I need to do to work my, my, work my way to heaven? Isn't there something I need to do to earn salvation? There's got to be something I, I can do. You see, it seems too easy. It seems too free. There must be something I need to do. Plenty of people and religious traditions will be more than happy to enslave you into a system that will tell you that you have to work for it. That there's something you need to do. The proud human heart insists upon paying for what we've done. We think about what we've done wrong, we feel so bad about it, and our proud human hearts say, I've got to pay. It can't stand the humiliation of admitting bankruptcy, of allowing someone else to pay. So we say, well, I'll come to the cross, good and well. I know that Jesus died for my sins on the cross, and I will come to the cross, and I will bring my baptism, and I will bring my good works, and I will bring my service, and I will bring my giving. Because that will help me get to God. It won't. Now the second extreme is on the other side of the coin, and it's this. Isn't it just a matter of me just saying I'm a Christian? It doesn't matter how I live, just what I say I believe. I have fire insurance. If 
fire insurance. Many say it doesn't matter how you live, just what you say you believe. Both extremes are not true. Jesus didn't teach either one. One ignores our inability to do anything to save ourselves. And the other ignores the importance God puts on how we live our lives in light of the cross. Both minimize and devalue the cross's importance. You come to God with anything in your hands, you'll be turned away. Our righteousness, the scriptures tell us, are like filthy rags. Our sin is vile in God's sight. Our sin is putrid in the sight of God. So don't bring anything into your hands because there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We can't earn it. We can do nothing to commend ourselves to God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, we read these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then over in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we read, He saved us. Speaking of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. It says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10 tell us that there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God and that we are to rest from our works and rest in His. Rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sin and my sin. The scriptures tell us by the works of the flesh shall no flesh be justified. We also can't trample on the grace of God and act as if it means nothing. The scriptures also tell us that the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. And that there is none righteous, the book of Romans tells us. None righteous, no, not one. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So have you come to the cross? Have you come to the cross where final payment was made for your sin? Augustus Toplady wrote in his song, Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. See, a relationship with God is based upon God's grace, not our works. Jesus paid it all. He did everything, everything. And that's the second thing I want you to see. That everything has to do with what Jesus has done on the cross. Look at verse 10 again. The second part. Verse 10 begins, we have an altar. And then it says, we have an altar that those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. They can't. Because they are coming to God on the basis of what they do. They are coming with their own works. Acting on our behalf, Jesus paid our penalty. A prophet 
represents God to the people, and Jesus was a prophet. But a priest represents the people to God, and Jesus is our high priest, our great high priest. So our great high priest, Jesus, with power of attorney for us, came to offer sacrifice for us, and he did it all. Look at verse 12. The end result that God was aiming for is to sanctify the people. It says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. That was the goal, to set us apart. Leo the Great, the bishop of Rome from 440 to 461 AD, preached these words. Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed, as the apostle says offering himself to the Father as a new and real sacrifice of reconciliation. He was crucified. Not in the temple whose due worship is now completed, nor within the enclosure of the city which was to be destroyed because of its crime, but outside the camp. That way, as the mystery of the ancient sacrifices was ceasing, a new victim would be put on a new altar. And the cross of Christ would be the altar, not of the temple, but of the world. We are sanctified through the death and the blood of Jesus. When we come to God by faith, we are welcomed, we are accepted, we receive forgiveness. The only way our souls can be clean and pure before a holy God is to be sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, when when God sees those who are in Christ, those who have come to faith in Christ, not based on their own works, but on Jesus' finished works, He sees us with the covering. The covering of what Jesus has done. The blood of Jesus Christ covers us. But see, to do this, Christ had to suffer outside the camp. That's what it says to us. He suffered outside the gate. All the gospel accounts of the crucifixion mention going out. Going out of the city of Jerusalem. Out to the place of the skull. Out to Golgotha. Outside is where the lepers were. Outside is where the trash was thrown. Outside the dead bodies of animals sacrificed were burned. It's where they threw the refuse and the outcasts outside the gate. It was a place of reproach. It was a place of shame. It was a place of degradation. It was not a pretty place. Jesus is not a pretty boy savior. Jesus went outside the gate, outside the camp. Verse 12 is telling us that when when Christ came, he was so hated, he was so despised that he suffered outside the camp. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
Sin is vile. Sin is a heinous crime against God. Sin is a shocking revolt, a rebellion against God. It is a stench in the nostrils of God. Sin is not cute and cuddly. Sin is not to be laughed at. According to the predetermined plan and purpose of God, Jesus Christ bore our sin in his body on the cross. See, he had to go where it was putrid and foul and vile because of our sin that he was taking upon himself. Our sin was so vile in God's sight that he had to turn his back on the sun. It became pitch black at at high noon when Jesus was on the cross. The Father had to turn his back on the Son because of our sin that was so vile in his sight. Your sin, my sin, transferred to the perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, on the cross. Placed on the altar of the cross. What Jesus did on the cross is called substitutionary atonement. Kids, you may have to explain this to your parents. Substitutionary atonement. Two big words, I know. And it includes the idea of satisfaction where God responds to human rebellion against himself in a way that is perfectly consistent with his holy character. The wrath of God against sin must be satisfied. That's a fact. And it would be impossible for sinners to eternally be the objects of God's love since he cannot punish us and pardon us at the same time. The only way that God's holy love could be satisfied in his wrath is that it would be appeased in judgment against his chosen substitute so that his love could be applied to us in forgiveness. The substitute takes the penalty. We receive the pardon. God satisfied his wrath against our sin. By putting himself in our place. The righteous loving father humbled himself. To become in and through his only son. Flesh and sin and a curse for us. In order to redeem us without compromising his holy character. The idea of substitution. Is at the heart of salvation. And it's also at the heart of sin. At the heart of sin, man substitutes himself for God. The heart of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Mankind asserts himself against God, puts himself where only God should be. But God sacrifices for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. 
Man claims privileges that are God's alone. And God pays the penalty that is man's alone. It's the ultimate example of amazing love. Amazing grace. Have you come under the blood of Jesus? Have you come under the shelter of the cross? It calls for a response. Look at verse 13. So, let us go out to him bearing his reproach. What does it mean, let us go out to him? It it means to believe. It means to have faith in Jesus. There's a tie into Hebrews 12 too, which says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. It speaks of fixing the eyes of our heart. The idea is what going back to that Old Testament scene where after the people had sinned, God set up a, a brazen altar and when the people looked to, the, to the, the bronze serpent, they would be healed. And the seeing of the Old Testament is the believing, the looking, the fixing our eyes upon Jesus in the New Testament. And let us go out to him means to believe, means to have faith. But what does it mean to bear his reproach? It means to follow in his steps. Jesus said, as they did to me, they're going to do to you. Nothing we do can make us right with God. Everything has to do with what Jesus did on the cross. But there is a response called for. Not to earn salvation, But a response is called for. The something we do is believe and follow. Believe and follow. And about this, Jesus taught full commitment. Nothing knowingly held back. Here's what Jesus said four times in the Gospels. Two times in Matthew. Two times in Luke. I'll quote Luke 9.23 to you. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus spoke these words to all who claim to know Jesus and anyone who would dare to consider it. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny self means to reject companionship, to disown self, to refuse association with yourself, to say, I can no longer stand myself. I won't feed my ego then. I won't satisfy myself. John Stott said this, to deny ourselves is to behave toward ourselves as Peter did toward Jesus when he denied him three times. He disowned him, repudiated him, turned his back on him. Self-denial is not denying ourselves luxuries such as chocolates and cakes and cigarettes and cocktails, though it might include this. It is actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. Deny self and take up a cross. We think this means enduring some hardship. We think this means doing without something for a period of time. It doesn't mean doing without something. It doesn't mean giving something up. 
It means giving everything up. Take up a cross, die to self, and follow Jesus. Not get your needs met. Follow Jesus. You want this, Jesus? You want the Jesus that, 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 that hung on the cross and paid for our sins? If so, you're going to have to leave your false religion behind. You're going to have to leave all your good works. You're going to have to leave everything you think commends you to God. You're going to have to think anything that you can put on your list and say, but I did this or I did that or I gave this or I gave that. You're going to have to leave it all behind. Separate. Renounce. Identify with a Jewish man that God raised from the dead. Are you willing to do that right now? Are you willing to say, I I deny myself, I refuse association with myself because I mess myself up. And I want to follow Jesus. There is no easy way. There is no cheap grace. There is no easy believism. It's not in the Bible. You have to make a break with your former way of life. There are some Christians who go by the name Christian that won't break from their former way of life. Jesus said, anyone wants to come after me, take up his, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's got to be a break from your former way of life. You've got to cut ties if you want this Savior. If you want the Jesus that's in the Bible, the the Jesus of the Bible, you've got to cut ties with your former way of life. Break off with your friendship with the world and stand with Jesus. And then be willing to be sent back into that same world that you used to be in love with and proclaim allegiance to to a crucified, risen, living Savior. That's what it means to follow Jesus. When we stand before the cross, God gives us a clear view of himself and ourselves. The cross undermines our self-righteousness. We have none. The cross doesn't flatter us we can only stand before it with a bowed head and a broken heart. When we do that, God has us ready to focus on unseen realities. I'll close with verse 14. Look at verse 14. For here, we do not have a lasting city. The things of earth that our hearts cling to are insecure. When we go out to Him, we're gaining so much more. We're trading a city doomed to pass away for heaven itself. That will be forever. See, all of man's cities will be shaken. The city of God remains. The last part of verse 14 says... We are seeking a city which is to come. We're to live here on earth seeking heaven. See, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. 
and heaven awaits. Heaven awaits. Let's pray. Lord God, we we come to you so thankful for, for what you have done, so grateful for what Jesus did on the cross. And, and so ashamed of what we've done. But, but we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you don't come to us uh, condemning us. You come to us offering us eternal life and forgiveness and a welcome and acceptance. And we just praise you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.